This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from Drew Holcomb. But first, a story about family, place, and loss. My name's Wright Thompson. I'm a writer for ESPN. I also write books. Pappy Land is my most recent one. I'm also a contributor to The Atlantic. I've always really liked Drew's music. I mean, I think like all writers, we wish we were rock stars. You know, I I both like the artistry of his songwriting, but, you know, he also can knock the roof off a place. And so, you know, I've I've been a major fan. And uh, so when I found out that he wanted to write a song about this, I was flattered, obviously, but, you know, nervous because it was obviously deeply personal to me. Writing an essay for a magazine is a craft. You know, I'm building a table that I can put my memories on and have you look at. But what uh, what Drew did here uh, is art. It's very beautiful. It's something that uh, me and my family will treasure for a long time. This is Wright Thompson with a piece he originally published in Garden and Gun titled Down Memory Highway. If the priest were correct for once and I were to ever go blind, if my world went to shadow and black and I couldn't see a solitary thing, I submit for your consideration that I could still drive from Yazoo City to Greenwood, Mississippi. I know this journey cold. Surely you've got a road like that, a drive you could make without thinking, each turn and straight carefully wrapped and stored in the closets of your memory. I've ridden this road hundreds of times. The first was when I was just weeks old. The last time was a week ago. The first left took me down a wooded hill and away from my Uncle Will's house, where he lay in bed dying. His room overlooked those same woods. I'd come here to say goodbye, and in his familiar house, where we'd gathered so many times, I couldn't shake the strangeness of his shrinking world. His entire life now consisted of one room. He was never again to walk down his hall, past his fireplace, through his bright yellow kitchen, and into his pantry, where so many memorable meals began. There was something oddly beautiful about this winnowing. His and my Aunt Becky's room was the center of the home and their family. It felt like the house itself was alive and in triage, shutting down unnecessary extremities. Uncle Will loved that Delta Drive, too, often taking it instead of the quicker route down the highway. Every mile held another memory, so in a metaphysical way, his moving along the road was the story of his life. That he liked that road was an unsurprising but new fact about him, and the realization that there were so many things still to learn, and with time rushing away, things that I would never learn, left me feeling unmoored. And Becky told me that detail with a smile, and an accent suggesting a fragility that I can testify does not exist. A crisis reveals her backbone and strength. She is unbreakable and was in charge of those precious days. There's a saying my dad had about his mother-in-law that applies to my aunt, too. When Becky says it's Easter, it's time to start dyeing your eggs. The next right pointed me toward the Yazoo City Country Club, which always evokes a half-remembered story about my grandfather being made to feel less than by polite society folks and how his superior golf game was the way a country boy told city folks to go to hell. 
I took a right on US 49. The road turned country fast. Little farm towns like Renshaw, abandoned cotton gins, new metal barns erected next to collapsing rotten wooden ones, a juxtaposition that toys with the structure of time and reality, a philosopher's dream, as if to say, you might be new and shiny now, but one day you will be like me. An American Ozymandias, look on my works in despair, rushing past the Eden Midway Road. A big sweeping loop at Bee Lake and the juke joint in Thornton, where I imagine the guitars moaning and ringing like lone and level sands. Maybe they just have a stereo now. A closed country store that once served bologna and hook cheese sandwiches. Where did all these people go? Who raises money for them with a counter jar whenever their kids need an operation down in Jackson? I tried to find a spot on the left side of the road that my dad always talked about, but I couldn't find the landmark. Old propane tanks, I think, or maybe a power facility. Without that visual trigger, the story floated just beyond my ability to recall. I could see the shore, but couldn't reach it. A panic set in. My dad used to narrate this stretch of road with stories of his childhood and young adulthood. I remember my mom and I laughing and rolling our eyes as he told the same story at the same place, a story I now couldn't remember. It was about some old football game, I think, or maybe baseball. My whole job as a son is to remember his story so he doesn't die again and again, little by little. What a betrayal, then, to lose this part of his life that I'd been entrusted to remember. Did it happen in Thornton, Milston? I looked out at the skeletal trees of a Delta winter, thick on the banks of bayous and creeks, like even the land knew there was a great man dying behind me. Uncle Will is my dad's older brother. There were four boys altogether, and they grew up on a farm outside Bentonia. Fraser, Will, Walter, and Michael. Now only Will and Michael are left. Yesterday was Michael's 72nd birthday, and Will is dying in his bedroom. The hospice nurses said a month, then a week. My cousin, Will's son, told me to come quick. I sat in the wooden chair by his bed and wept. I told him I understood I'd never see him again and how much I appreciated the love he'd shown me and how I hoped he'd tell my daddy hello. He gripped my hand and said, thank you for caring for me. And with those words in my head, I walked out of the room and let his grandson take my place in the chair. Minutes were as precious then as that fine sandy loam and people were generous with each other in an unspoken way. Everything else at the house was a blur, and now I was on this familiar road, looking at the barren trees and the silver blanket of winter coming down. I didn't turn on the radio, and I tried for miles to remember. The roadside played its own music. Chula snuck up fast, the triple S grocery buzzing with pickup truck crossroads energy across the highway from a prehistoric-looking cypress swamp the same color as the collapsing houses up and down the road. I thought about my Uncle Michael, who would soon be the only Thompson brother left. A terrible responsibility will be his alone to shoulder. No one will share his memories of his parents and of their parents, of life on that farm in the years they called it home, both a place and a time endangered and vulnerable. The unwinding road felt familiar but also foreign, like a thing breaking into pieces and slipping through my fingers. There are Indian mounds all around this road, and it occurred to me that we don't know a single thing about the men and women buried in them. We don't even know what language they spoke, or their hopes, dreams, and fears. The land shows they existed, but nothing more. 
The Northern Irish poet Seamus Haney wrote, History says don't hope. And this is what he meant, I think. That memory is a half-hearted matador wave at unstoppable forces we can barely name, much less understand. A sign outside Greenwood had a faded, worn cotton plant on it. That felt about right. As a child, I'd want to go to a fast food chain when we got here, but my dad always insisted we stop at Maloof's Deli. Now I understand why. I don't remember what we ordered, but when we finished, we'd make the turn toward Clarksdale, where we lived when I was growing up. Now I go the other way and head to Oxford, where I live with my wife and daughters, through Teoc, near the overgrown grave of the Choctaw chief who signed the treaty that gave this dirt to the United States. Mississippi is made from the broken pieces of things that used to be, by memories preserved and vanished, by myths and traumas, by the roads and roadsides where all those things live. I got back home just as a winter storm started, and as the land turned cold and bleak, Uncle Will died. He left this world just after midnight, 14 hours after I said goodbye, surrounded by his children and their children, who prayed with him and sang him hymns. His body lay in a bed that looks out over a forest of trees, which looks out over a highway, which follows a railroad that follows an old forest path, which follows rivers and streams and bayous. I wonder what his spirit saw when it rose out of this place. Did he only stare upward and wonder at a kingdom where nothing and no one has ever lost a time? Or maybe, just once, he looked over his shoulder to see for a final time the dominion of frail humans who were forever trying and failing to hold safe the people and places we love. for the song written in response. My name is Drew Holcomb, and I'm a songwriter, troubadour, somebody who wears a lot of hats like we all do. I find myself with the great gift of getting to do something I love for a living, and that's writing songs and playing them in front of people who are listening, usually. I was uh, gifted a book called Pappy Land, Uh, which is his sort of memoir of spending a good amount of time with the infamous Van Winkle family of the Pappy Van Winkle name, the the whiskey, the bourbon brand. I thought I was going to read a book about bourbon and about this family, but really was reading a book about fatherhood and about place and location. It was a very sort of familiar feeling, this idea of like where people sort of live in the shadows of their fathers and their grandfathers and then try to make their own space in the world in their own name. I was exposed to him that way and then I realized that I was also reading him in other places like The Atlantic and Garden and Gun. And this particular piece that he wrote was in Garden and Gun. It was a it was a sort of a magazine dedicated to this particular um, month was dedicated to roads, like road trips and stuff. So you're thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. It's gonna be a bunch of like travel stuff. And then you get to this piece that he wrote about driving an old road to say goodbye to his uncle who was dying and was basically in hospice care. And uh, I found myself in an airport reading this article and sobbing. I have a very large family. I'm one of 28 uh, grandchildren on my mother's side and I'm one of nine grandchildren on my 
father's side, so family's a big deal. Lots of aunts and uncles. I understand the story of sort of being raised by a tribe, not just your not just isol in an isolation of being raised by my parents. I was raised by my aunts and uncles. I was raised by my great aunts and uncles. I have piles of memories of various uncles, one in particular. My great uncle was, my grandmother's brother was a World War II veteran. He had um, been a heavy machinery operator after the war and had had his leg sort of uh, broken and put back together. And so he had one foot that was four inches shorter than the other. And he drove this old truck and he had this old place in the mountains where he would go shoot 22s at gourds, blowing up tomatoes and just like this kind of country experience. And so when I was reading about this thing, I, I remembered very clearly like the first time I drove that road after he passed away and thinking like this road is never going to be the same. This this person that plays this outsized role in my sort of mythology of my youth is gone my experience is that when people are alive in the places where you have memories those memories seem closer and more sort of real and attached and as they go away you start to feel old yourself right and so you're not only grieving like what these, these people and your memories, but you're also grieving your own sort of like, your own sort of long, slow demise. <laughs> Without being sort of morbid about it, but that's, there's a truth to that. And I think honestly, there's a, there's a, um, a gratitude in it as well, besides the grief. And those things are sort of, to me, they always sort of work in tension with each other. You weep, you, you weep about what you love, but it's also what, what gives you the gives you a lot of joy. And so that tension is sort of the, is the beautiful part of the story. I know for me, grief exposes my own sort of fears and bro the broken parts of me. So when I lost my brother, something sort of irre irrevocably broke inside of me. It makes me able to break again. And, and I think that's actually like a, a really a good thing. Once, you, once you're able to break and like spill the sadness out a little bit, you can also then like sort of find the joy. And you can't do that. You can't really like really know how much you love something until you lose it. And so music has a way of sort of narrating and putting sort of uh, sonic landscape on that. When I read that thing about broken pieces of Mississippi, I also thought, well, that's that's also right. That's also me. Like I am a product of the the, the heartbreaks and contradictions of where I come from. Um, Wright wrote an also, another piece recently in the Atlantic about the barn where Emmett Till was tortured. And it's really good for a lot of reasons, but one, because Wright doesn't pull any punches about his own sort of association with this tragic piece of human history, not just Mississippi history, that is connected to the blood and the land that he loves and the land that he grew up in. And so when he says that about broken pieces in Mississippi, I know what he's talking about, having read this other piece, that he's also talking about uh, slavery and, and violence against um, neighbors. I was a, a pallbearer like five times before I graduated high school, and the other four times were all uncles.
was three years old, my brother was born with a severe case of spina bifida. Uh, he was immediately uh, paralyzed from about the sternum down. He was, we were told um, he would never speak, uh, that he would live a very short life, um, and it would be in a vegetative state. Um, thankfully, most of that proved to be not true. He um, had a trach, but he got it removed at age two, maybe 18 months. Uh, he was used lots of words. He was very talkative. He was very mentally fine. Um, uh, uh, he was he had some learning difficulties, but nothing um, that that was nothing like what we were we were told. So um, I had this great life with him, and then when I was uh, 17, he passed away while I was out of the country. He, he had been doing really well. He had a lot of surgeries, 24, 25 surgeries, but we shared a lot of life together. We were two years, two and a half years apart, and um, there were four siblings total on the second. He was third, and it was devastating and heartbreaking and just uh, was a major part of my own life. And my own sort of fables and mythology are built a lot of around, around that childhood that we shared. think that you can find ache in sort of any genre and what ache does is it sort of gives you a path it's, it's like an, where an artist or a songwriter is like honest about uh, the tension of pain and joy that we all experience on a, on a daily basis the disappointment plus um, the successes and the sort of the highs and lows that life is and sort of music is this vehicle where people get connected to that tension you know but the, the heart of music is the same thing, which is like, does this give me a path to like feeling more alive than I did before I turned the song on? You know, and I, I don't know why music does that, but it does and it's magic. This is Drew Holcomb with a live performance of his song, Slower Than the Highway. Past the juke joint in Thornton Only guitars to play are on the stereo Past the abandoned cotton gin and Renshaw Wondering where did all the people go Past the shadows in the forest I park next to your house and take a breath Past the fireplace in the yellow kitchen Hug Aunt Becky before I come and take your hand You love this road even though it's slower than the highway You love this land with its myths and fables and heartbreaks And you love this house where we could hear you sing and laugh and pray I'm sitting in a wooden chair beside your bed Tell you how much I appreciate the love you've shown me But I left before they started singing hymns To cry alone as the sun set across Mississippi 
Well, you love this road even though it's slower than the highway. And you love this land with its myths and fables and heartbreaks. And you love this house where we could hear you sing and laugh and pray. your last breath after midnight I felt my broken pieces more than I'm used to there will always be things I can't understand but one thing come pretty easy is missing you cause I love this road even though it's slower than the highway I love this land with its myths and fables and heartbreaks. And I love this house where we could hear you sing and laugh and pray. That was Drew Holcomb with his song, Slower Than the Highway. Special thanks to Lindsay Bailey and all of the wonderful folks at Stunt Company, as well as Paul and Samantha Steele and Hannah Rector at Triple Eight Management for helping me put this together. Thanks also to Jeffrey Reed at Taproot Audio Design in Oxford, Mississippi. The next episode will feature the life story of director Mike Nichols, as told by his biographer Mark Harris, and a song by Anna Klein of Swift Silver. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support my work and the work of the artists who appear on the show, please consider getting a premium subscription via Apple Podcasts or simply going to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Regular old subscriptions, five-star reviews, and kind words on social media are always appreciated too. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.